0: Am good? Good deal. All right, so we are going to be looking at the doctrine of repentance over the next six weeks, and so I'm thankful that Joey has given me the opportunity to teach. I'm very thankful um, to be able to study the Word of God with y'all. I've really grown to love y'all over the time I've got to spend here, so very thankful, and I'm thankful for Being able It's really a privilege to be able to teach this doctrine to y'all specifically because this is such a mature body of believers. So I know that this is going to be a joy for me as much as it will be for y'all, even though it is a hard topic in many ways and one that's been convicting for me. So I'm really thankful for what we've been doing on Wednesday nights because our approach here is going to be really similar. Uh, We're going to be doing a biblical theological overview and so that very much so is what we've been doing on Wednesday night with the doctrine of sin and now we're getting into the doctrine of salvation. We aren't necessarily looking at one passage and just going through that passage. We're looking at the whole Old Testament, looking at the whole New Testament and looking at what it all teaches about a specific doctrine. Um, So we're going to be looking first at the Old Testament. Um, That's where we're going to start tonight. We're going to be there for about three weeks hopefully. And then we're going to switch to the New Testament and be there for probably about three weeks. Um, And what you'll find, the Old Testament is going to flow right into the New Testament like it has on Wednesday nights. If we can understand the Old Testament doctrine, the New Testament just builds right on top of it. So the Old Testament is going to be a little bit longer probably. Um, We have more words to cover. We're going to build a vocabulary just like we've been doing on Wednesday nights. So there's a lot of work to do in the Old Testament, but um, once we do, it'll pay off once we get to the New Testament, and all that'll just build off of each other. Before we really get into it, I want to talk a little bit about why we ought to study this doctrine specifically. So the study, the doctrine of repentance, is a universal command. So a lot of times in the church, we like to universalize things that aren't necessarily universal. We talk about the love of God, and His selection for His children, His special grace that He shows for His children. And we like to talk about that like it applies to everybody in the world. You know, you listen to praise and worship songs nowadays, and you get the idea that God's grace applies to everybody unconditionally. And that's not really the case, but Scripture does give us some things that are universal, and repentance is one of them. We are all called, it says in Acts 17:30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So this is a universal call and it's a universal thing that we're all responsible for. So we all have to understand it because we're all going to be held responsible to how we respond to the universal command to repent. Um, second, The connection between repentance and faith. As we look, especially in the New Testament, but Old Testament too, you really cannot divorce these two ideas of faith and repentance. The vocabulary overlaps, the ideas overlap. Both of these play into a single idea of conversion. When we are converted by the Holy Spirit, we both respond to God in faith, turning to Him, and repentance, turning away from sin. You really can't divorce those two ideas for a complete picture of what happens when we come to faith in Christ. Um, the, the last part of this uh, verse in Mark 1, 14 through 15, this is when Jesus is first starting his ministry in Galilee. He comes preaching a message of repentance and belief. The, the end there says, repent and believe in the gospel. So you really can't divorce those two ideas. We're a church that understands faith very well, and we, we stand on faith alone and If we're going to stand on faith alone, you have to stand on repentance too. You can't divorce those two. Third, necessity of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As we're going to be going through this, you're going to see that the Bible often speaks of repentance in the context of salvation. So a lot of confusion and abuse has come to the doctrine of repentance because a lot of people think it's a work. And if it's a work, it can't be required for salvation. Uh, The reality is, if we understand it biblically, it's not a work, and it is required for salvation. And so, since it's required for salvation, it's something we really ought to know and know well. This verse is an example. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Fourth, uh, this doctrine has been neglected, misunderstood, and abused uh, throughout church history, even to today. So, I found it interesting. The book that I I went through actually started with this quote, but Martin Luther, he started Protestant Reformation. I mean, and we are a Protestant um, congregation of believers. He started that with nailing his 95 theses to a chapel door in Wittenberg. And the first one was this right here, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Uh, He, I mean, that's... Absolutely true. Martin Luther really got it well, and we're going to see that as we move through this. Um, But I found that really interesting that this was something that even in his day was being abused by the Catholic Church and something that we still need to stand on today as one of our distinctive doctrines. Um, But even to today, easy believism, the whole idea that you can just believe or profess, make a one-time profession of faith in Christ but have no change of life. God is not your Lord whatsoever totally unaffected by the gospel in any way shape or form um, but still be saved finally before the judgment seat of God that's what easy believism is and that's really born out of a misunderstanding of repentance they say repentance isn't required for salvation all you got to do is confess Jesus as your Lord or as your Savior not your Lord and you're good you're good to go so if we're to interact with easy believism we have to understand the doctrine of repentance they do get it right that work is not required for salvation. Salvation is not by works. They just misunderstand repentance. They don't understand that repentance isn't fundamentally a work if we understand it biblically. And finally, um, we as believers have a couple ways that repentance is still, I mean a lot of ways, but a couple ways specifically that repentance is still bearing on us. One is the practice of repentance. We see in the New Testament several calls for even believers to repent. Or churches to repent. Uh, for example, book of Revelation starts with seven letters to the churches, seven different churches, and it's calling them to repent. Each one of them is called to repent. Um, and so as congregations, as bodies of believers that are following after Christ, they're still called to repent. So it's an ongoing thing. It's not just, you know, we repented before, but now we're good. It's an ongoing thing. Uh, and then we are called as disciples of God to proclaim repentance. Uh, Luke 24: 44 through 48 there. Jesus' disciples are to be witnesses to the gospel, specifically that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to His name in His name, to all nations. So we are this is, this is kind of before Jesus is ascended into heaven, or ascends into heaven, uh, he, he commissions his disciples to proclaim a message of repentance. So if we're to be faithful to our call as disciples, we really ought to know this doctrine well so that we can proclaim it to those around us. So those are just some ideas of why this doctrine is so important and why we ought to take the time to really study and delve into this. Um, So like I said tonight, uh, this is going to be a little bit more of an informational night, not quite as devotional as it will be in coming weeks. We're gonna just lay down a foundation of some of the vocabulary that the Old Testament uses. Um, And the reason that's so important, the Old Testament especially uses words that are rich. These words paint word pictures because most all of these, maybe not the last one as much, but the first three especially, are really like physical words that are then applied to moral contexts. So if we understand these words and what they meant in like a physical, non-moral way, then we understand, okay, when the prophets are calling people to repentance, this is what it looks like. This is the physical picture of what this looks like because we understand this word. Um, So we've got four Hebrew words we're going to look at tonight. Um, We're going to start by looking at this first one here, a chom, I think is how it's said. Um, And it's it's a really interesting one. This is actually probably the most difficult one, in my opinion, to really delve into and get your mind wrapped around um, because this word is the word used when it talks about, the Old Testament talks about God repenting, right? So maybe you've read in the Old Testament those passages about God relenting or God changing His mind or God repenting. And you wonder, okay, what in the world's going on here? Does God repent? Why, if, if repentance is this idea of changing in the inner man and changing direction of the heart or changing of the mind or changing of the behavior, changing from sin to not sin, then how in the world does God repent? Because he's sinless, he's perfect, he doesn't change his mind. How do you make sense of all these things? So we've got to cover what this word means, how to understand it in the context, and as we do, it's going to be helpful to keep in mind uh, three questions, three aspects, I guess, of repentance, and you're going to see these over and over again as we move through this doctrine. Repentance always involves, most fundamentally, for humans, for mankind as we repent, a change of mind uh, is is the most fundamental way that repentance changes us. It's an inner change. It changes our mind, changes our heart, changes our disposition towards God. Um, But from that, flowing from that inward change, our actions are changed, um, and our emotions or our affections are changed. So, repentance isn't just a behavior change. Repentance, most fundamentally, is a change of mind, change of heart, and then it flows into a change of behavior and a change of your emotions or affections. So, you really got to keep those things distinct as you're thinking through the doctrine of repentance, and that's important because as we're going to walk through some of these passages here in a second that use this word, Naham, we're going to ask ourselves, okay, does God change actions? Does God change His emotions? Does God change his mind, his plan, or his character? Um, and, and we've got big issues if God changes his, his, his plan or his character or his mind. You know, if, if God's mutable, if God's changeable, that creates a little, uh, really big issues for us. So as we move through these passages, it's super helpful to be able to ask, okay, what aspects of repentance apply to God and what parts in no ways apply to God? Um, so let's go ahead and start looking at some of these passages. First way this word Naham" is translated is, in Jeremiah or is to relent. Um, and you see that a lot throughout Scripture, especially in the prophets, the prophets calling people to repentance in order that God would relent from the disaster that He's planning on them. And so God responds in relenting. Uh, let's read these two passages here. Jeremiah 18:8 8 through10. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So in both... You know, we've got a positive and a negative kind of going on here. God will relent of the disaster he plans if they repent, or he will relent of the good that he has promised if they rebel against him. And both times, there's a shift in how God's acting towards his people. Um, Then let's read Jonah 3.10 through 4.2 before we start asking ourselves some of those questions from the previous slide. Uh, It says, When God saw what they did, The Ninevites, this is when uh, Jonah goes to Nineveh and proclaims that they repent or they'll be destroyed. The people respond in repentance, um, even down to the animals putting on sackcloth. It says, When God saw what they did, their repentance, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, "O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster." So when we talk about God repenting in the Old Testament, people who try to cut down the Old Testament and try to discredit um, our beliefs in God are going to try to say, y'all can't trust God. God changes in character. In no way does God change in character in this. Quite the contrary. If you look at what Jonah says in the end of his passage, he says, I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. He ties God's relenting into God's character. God doesn't relent because he changes character. God relents out of faithfulness to his character. He in no ways changes his character. So let's ask our questions. Does God change his mind? He absolutely does not change his mind. He changes his action towards man, but he does not change his mind. God was not entering one way of thinking or one way of reasoning or logic about a situation or one set of beliefs about a situation and then going into a different way of thinking about the situation, or a different logic, or a different belief or understanding. That sort of change does not occur in either of these. Does God's uh, emotion or affection change? Well, probably a little bit, but that's not explicitly mentioned in these passages. What these passages focus on is God's action changing, right? He goes from having a plan of destruction for these people to relenting and being gracious or merciful, especially merciful to these people. So how do we understand that? How how do we make sense of that? The best way I've come to make sense of that is there was a point in time for every person in here who is a believer of Christ where God went from being your destroyer and the person who would condemn you and had all sorts of wrath against you to that wrath being put on Christ and now God is your heavenly Father. So there was a change in God's action and disposition towards you in a time in history, like a chronological time, for us anyways, where God changes His action towards us. He had plans to destroy us and condemn us for our rebellion and our sin nature, and that changes into showing grace to us and kindness to us out of faithfulness to His character. So God does not change His character, but He does change His action. So it's super important to understand that and keep that in mind because you'll have people that'll say, oh, you God changes. It says so in the Bible. It says he repents. No, God relents. He changes his action, but he, he doesn't change his character. God is faithful to his character. Does God grieve? This same word has quite a range of meaning, um, but one of the ways it can be translated is grief. Uh, God grieves or is sorry or laments. We see this first, this is the first, I think this is the first occurrence of the word in the Bible, uh, Genesis 6.6, 6, this is after God's created all mankind, um, they've lived for a while, they've multiplied, and they have, their hearts are turned continually towards evil from the time of their youth. This is right before God's going to flood the earth in the time of Noah. God looks down at mankind, and the Lord, it says, regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So again, this, actually it's interesting, the King James Version translates this, that it, it repented the Lord, um, that he had made mankind. So that, that, again, this is just one of those passages that throws people off, because depending on what translation you read it in, it might so- sound like God's repenting or regretting something that he's doing. So how do we understand this? Um, Well, first, fundamentally, God does grieve over sin. In this passage, it's the grief over all mankind's sin, except Noah, who who is said to be righteous and walk with God. God is grieved by sin, and it's an appropriate usage of this word. We just have to be careful with how we translate it, because this word can be meant to just express grief or regret or remorse over a situation without implying some kind of like moral, behavioral uh, change. And that definitely is how it's used in this context. God is grieved over the sin of the people. Uh, but it gets even more, I guess, applicable to us when we see this word occur in First Samuel 15, 10 through 11. It says, The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret, Naham, that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. So this is when God has set up Saul as king. Uh, he's been anointed by Samuel. And then Saul, twice, rebels against God and disobeys him, going after his own way. And God is said to regret or be grieved, depending on how you translate it, over Saul's sin. So, first passage of Genesis 6, we saw God being grieved by Mankind's sin, very, you know, large scope, group setting. And this passage is just a man's sin. It's individual. It grieves God, right? And so as I've been studying this, this has kind of hit me. Like we don't really understand or take we take for granted too much how much even our individual sin has the capacity to grieve God, right? So... None of us wants to disappoint our fathers or a respected figure in our life of authority. Why do we become so flippant with our sin in our life if it grieves God? Um, that's one way that this has just been very convicting and challenging to me. We, as we've been studying through the doctrine of sin and uh, Romans on Sunday mornings, we have understood greatly God's wrath against sin. Um, But the Bible shows that God is grieved over our sin, too. This word is a strong expression of grief and is really the best word to describe how God is affected by sin in times throughout history. Uh, But this this passage in 1 Samuel 15 is especially challenging because same chapter, same author, you skip down a couple of sentences, uh, it says, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, Naham, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So it seems like we've got a little contradiction going on here, right? We got verse 10-11. It says, "God, God speaking, I regret that I've made Saul king, right? And then you skip down a couple verses. The author says, oh no, God will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret, right? So what do we do with this? Same word used in two places. So, Brother Joey helped me understand this a little bit because so many times in Scripture, there's instances where there's like a, a, a bumper, you know, like when you're going bowling, and you can set up the bumpers to keep you from going down into the gutter, going off from one side or the other. That's kind of what's going on here, right? So, this word regret is the most appropriate word for us to understand how God is moved or affected by our sin. But depending on how we translate it, we could get confused and think, oh, well, God changes his mind, right? So immediately after saying that God repented or regretted that he had made Saul king, um, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Samuel, is quick to remind us that, hey, no, 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 This, this word has limits, right? You can't just take this and run with it and apply it any way you want. This doesn't mean that God changes his mind or there's any character change in God, no, he says, God is grieved that he made Samuel king, but he should not have a change of mind. So we see a change of emotion. Remember, we talked about the three ways that repentance occurs. It's change of action, change of, um, change of emotion, or change of mind. We see God having a change of emotion in response to mankind's sin, but we don't see God having a change of mind. And that's why I really like the way that the NASB translates this word right here. Same word um, speaking about God. He will not lie or change his mind, for he's not a son of man that he should change his mind. I really think that the NASB gets that right. So it's basically saying God will be grieved over the sin of Saul. God was grieved over the sin of Saul. But don't get this wrong. Don't don't misapply this word. God does not change his mind. Change of motion? Yes. Change of mind? Absolutely not. God is consistent to his character. So, why this word? Like, like why why use this word and risk potentially confusing people, right? Well, you got to remember like, God's outside of time, God's eternal. When he acts towards man, he's entering inside of time. And it can get a little bit tricky to communicate to us in ways that we understand God's actions um, or, or how he relates to mankind. So this is, this is an expression of something that's, how, how do you express how our sin can grieve God? This is just the best way to express that. But we just have to be careful and not misapply this and think, well, God regrets the same way we do. He, he lacked foresight. You know, that's what it is when we regret, right? We, we make a decision, and then later on we come to some new knowledge. We realize, oh, man, this decision was not what I should have done. I see so much more clearly now that this was a bad decision. I regret. It was lack of foresight. That's never the way it is with God. God never lacks foresight. So does God grieve? Yes. Does he regret? Not in the same way that we do. He doesn't ever lack foresight into the future events. So we really have to get this right because there. I mean, there's there's people out there. I've read books about people saying, "Well, God doesn't have ultimate knowledge of the future because it says in these passages that He regrets, and if He regrets, that means He didn't know what was going to happen." No, not at all. God changes emotion, but He doesn't change His mind. So, uh, and that's that's reiterated in Numbers. 23:19. This actually, this passage came before what what Samuel said, and probably Samuel was quoting this a little bit. But this is spoken by Balaam. Um, you'll remember the story of Balaam, a, a pagan diviner, who um, was hired out by Balak to pronounce a curse on Israel, right? And every time he tried to pronounce a curse on Israel, the spirit of God would come upon him, and he couldn't do anything besides pronounce a blessing on Israel. Try as he might, for the money that Balak was giving him, he could not pronounce a curse on Israel. And in one of these times when the Spirit of God comes upon him, he just erupts in this, this almost song describing God's character. And it starts off with these words, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of humankind that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has, and has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So this passage is where I would go to for, if we're trying to talk about the character of God not changing or, or the attributes of God or, or how God is not changing whatsoever. This is the passage I would, I would go to. God is not a son of man, that he should change his mind. Um, so that's, that's God and repentance. How does God repent in the Old Testament? Um, it, it, oh, real quick, this, this was a quote I found, um, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament. While the, affirmation, the affirmative use of Naham is associated, associated with a specific situation, regret at having created humankind, we saw that in Genesis 6, or having made Saul king, 1 Samuel 15, its use in negation is absolute. Ultimately, Yahweh does not change. So when we're just talking about God as a whole, like we're, we're describing God's attributes, not in relation to Saul, not in relation to creating mankind, we're just talking about, okay, who is God? like this passage is doing here. It's saying, no, God does not change his mind. That's absolute. Um, that's, that's a statement about God's character. So that's God in repentance. Um, God doesn't change his mind. God does not regret in the sense that we do, lacking foresight. God is deeply grieved by sin in ways that are best described by this verb. God was deeply grieved. He made man and made Saul king. God grieves individual situations of rebellion while not changing or regretting in his being or his sovereign plan. God does not change his character. God does, however, change his relation towards individuals when they are justified before him, going from destroyer to savior. God does relent when people repent, turning to him in humble, hopeful, and utterly dependent faith. So that's where we find ourselves. We... we understand God does not change. He's faithful to his character. Um, And yet our greatest hope is that he does relent. If if God were not to relent, we would all be doomed. So the fact that God is a God that is abounding in steadfast love and God is relenting, as Jonah said, is very good news for us. So now that we've talked about God and repentance, we're going to get to our next word which is usually used for describing mankind in repentance. Um, The second word we're going to look at tonight is shuv. Uh, This word is the most common word in the Old Testament. Talking about repentance occurs over a thousand times in the Old Testament. And it's originally used as a physical word, so not a moral word. When it was originally used, it's not talking about repentance. It's not talking about turning your heart or anything like that. It's literally just talking about turning direction. So, go in one direction, turn direction. Um, we see a couple examples. I've got a couple of examples of this word used in non-moral contact- contexts. Genesis 6, 9, 16, 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, being Hagar, return to your mistress and submit to her, being Sarah. So, Hagar was running away from Sarah, and the angel comes and says, no, you're going this way. I want you to turn around and go back to Sarah. Go back the way you came, return to her. So physical change of direction. Going one way, now we're going the other way. Um, It's actually the word used in Joshua when they're conquesting the land and they're talking about the boundary line. And the boundary line's changing directions as you'd imagine. And as it does, they use this word to describe it. Then the boundary turns to Ramah, reaching to the fortified city of Tyre. Then the boundary turns. So we see this word describing... Again, a physical direction change. Going one direction, now you're going a different direction. Uh, Ruth 1, 10 through 12a, they said to her, no, we want to return. This is uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law's. We want to return with you to your people. They want to go with her back to Israel. Naomi said, no, return my daughters to Moab. Why do you still want to go with me? Are there sons in my womb that may be husbands for you? turn back my daughter. So that occurs three times in that verse. Um, But you see see how this is used physically. They want to turn to Israel. She says, no, turn back to Moab. Turn back. So physical word. That paints a picture for us when we move into moral contexts, right? So now that we've understood that this is a directional change, we understand when the Bible talks about us turning our hearts... That is a complete change of direction from our hearts, from one state or one direction to another direction. Verse Samuel 7, 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Jeremiah 25, 4 through 5. The Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, Turn now, every one of you, from his evil way and evil deeds, and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers from of old and forever. So we see this used both positively and negatively. So, in one sense, we are turning to the Lord. Um, so that's, that's a positive change, turning to the Lord, to something. We also see it as turning away from something. Um, turn now, every one of you, from evil way and evil deeds. So the same word is used to describe a turn from, from evil and a turn to God. So keep that in mind, especially here um, in the Old Testament. It's used interchangeably. Um, This final verse here, Ezekiel 4, 6, uses the same word three times. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So it can also be used, these are all talking about God's people. These are all commands to God's people, turning one direction. Your heart's going one direction, now turn it to the other direction or um, turn even your face um, from your abominations. So the idea here, though, is God's people's hearts, they're they're set on idols or iniquity, and instead they need to set their hearts to God in repentance. But the same word can also be applied to God and His relation to mankind um, in both good ways and bad ways. This is a sobering passage in Joshua twenty four twenty. It says, If you forsake the Lord, talking to the nation of Israel, and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. So in this, this passage, God turning to His people brings harm um, and He will consume them. So you get the idea that turning to His people is not a desirable thing. But actually most of the time this word's used talking about God turning towards his people. it's Him turning to them in grace and benevolence, and being returning to them to make their way prosper in response to their repentance. So that's why when he gets to the book of Psalms, the Psalmist prays often that God would turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted and for the Son whom you made strong for yourself." So the psalmist frequently talks and asks God to turn to him um, because he, he wants God to return to him and bless him. Um, and finally, this is, I love this verse because there's a little bit of wordplay going on here. Um, Zechariah 1 3 Therefore say to them, the people, the nation of Israel, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So this is God promising that. If his people repent and turn to him, then he will return to them and give them grace. So that is our second word, shuv. Uh, moving into our third word, sure. Um, this word is similar in a lot of ways to shuv um, in that it, it's also translated as turning aside, uh, but when when it's used in the context of repentance, it it most of the time is used to describe removing something, okay? Um, and here's where we get into the idea of like behavioral change. You know, you always think of repentance as stopping sin, right? Or like removing sinful behavior from your life. Well, yes, repentance does involve that. Fundamentally, it's a change of heart, like we saw with our, our, our second word, shuv. Uh, but it's often accompanied by this word, shur, which is a removal of iniquity or idols or whatever sin is going on in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Um, so 1 Samuel 7, 3, again, we see this. And Samuel said to you, all the house of Israel, if you are returning shuv to the Lord with all your heart, then put away shur, the foreign gods and the astroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, serve Him only, and He will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So, nation of Israel, they are returning, repenting, turning to God with their hearts. Then that'll manifest itself with them putting away their foreign gods, their idolatry. Um, same thing in Psalm thirty-four fourteen, turning away. Or putting away putting away evil and do good instead so that you get the idea that repentance isn't just like entering into a neutral zone of being sin free it always starts with something internal going on right and that internal thing leads to a removal of sin and that removal of sin is replaced by doing good so repentance definitely has de- behavioral aspects to it. It's going to change the way you behave, the way you act, but it always starts with the heart. It starts with the inner, inside change. 2 Kings 18.4, this word, sure, um, this is a word used every time you get one of, to one of the good kings, which doesn't happen often, but when you get to one of the good kings in Israel's monarchy, and it says, okay, this guy, he did away with all of the idols, and he removed all the high places. He, he got rid of all of that stuff. This is the word they use. He removed the high places, talking about Hezekiah, uh, and broke the pillars and cut down the astra, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent. He removed all these things that represented sin, all the idols that Israel was going after. So this is a very physical word of removing iniquity, removing idols. It's the, the visible behavioral change that comes with repentance. Finally, this might be one of my favorite words that I studied, um, lebab, or leb, depending on how it appears in the text. This is a noun, not a verb. This is our first noun that we've looked at. And this is the Hebrew word for heart. So what you'll find as we're moving through this is that the Old Testament doesn't really talk much about changing your mind. Like you get into the New Testament, and repentance is very much so about changing your mind, right? Um, we, well, y'all probably heard about that. Like the, the New Testament word, metanoeo, um, literally has the word mind in it because it's a change of mind. But when you get to the Old Testament, it's actually a change of heart that is most often talked about, right? The nation of Israel needs to turn their hearts to God in repentance. So it's a change of heart So we need to know what they're talking about when they talk about heart, right? Um, This is a quote from a guy named Zimek. This is actually the guy who wrote the book we're going through on Wednesday nights. It's from that book, actually. It says, Although the references to Leb as a physical blood-pumping organ are virtually non-existent, the figurative sense of the innermost part of man permeates all portions of the Old Testament. When speaking of the figurative use of Leb, you know, we're talking about heart as not the blood-pumping organ, but we're talking about heart as something figurative. We must not go first to our number one metaphorical employment of the English term heart with its common emotional associations. So what he's saying there is, okay, when you hear the Old Testament talk about heart, don't immediately think, oh, okay, he's just talking about emotions. Like, just 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 change your emotions towards God. No, Zemeck is saying we can't just assume that he's talking about emotional stuff, like we would think of when we use heart in English. Rather, this term in the Old Testament most commonly references man's rationality and his volitionality, right? So so these two words we would more often think of as mind, right? We wouldn't say we make our rational decisions with our mind or our heart. We might make some decisions with our heart, but if we did, we wouldn't think, you know, if we said, hey, he's making decisions with his heart, we'd actually probably mean that he's not making rational decisions. He's making emotion-based decisions. But in the Old Testament, this idea of the heart being the center of your decision-making, like your your rationality, your logic, and your will, your volitionality, your will, um, the heart was the center of those things every bit as much as it was the center of your emotional things. We see this reflected in um, the Shema. Um, This is where Moses first says it to the people of Israel. Um, This is what it says. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, that's our word, leb, with all your soul and with all your might. And then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus quotes this. Now we're talking in Greek, so we've got a different language, totally different context. Um, and so now, now that you've, language has progressed a lot, you're getting into Greek culture, it's the language of the philosophers, you, you've got a distinction between the heart and the mind that you didn't have in Hebrew. And so when Jesus quotes this, this, this Shema, when he quotes it in Greek, um, or when the, the gospel writers are recording this, they add this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. So they add mind right there um, because they know that if you just say heart, you're, you're, you're leaving out some of the aspects that were originally meant in the original context of the Hebrew, right? Because the heart was much more than just the emotions. Um, and so Jesus is applying this to an audience that understood, okay, we've got to use heart and mind to capture all that is meant in the Old Testament when they talk about the heart. Got to use both those words. So when we're looking through the Old Testament over the next couple weeks, and we talk about turning our hearts towards God, know that, don't isolate it and just think that we're turning our emotions towards God, right? Don't, don't just think that that's all that, that's involved. It's, it's literally a change of of your mind, of your will, uh, of your rationality, your logic. Literally a- a- everything, it's, it's a very inclusive term, this term, leb, heart. Um, Theological Dictionary of the Old Testament notes that the heart is used at times as the center of personal identity. So your, you know, let's just walk through these and think about how if we turn this to God, it would change us. So the center of personal identity, so our identity, is changed when we turn from sin, turning to God, our identities changed. the center of our affections. so our affections change. We go from hating God, loving sin to loving God and hating sin. The noetic center, so that's, that's brain stuff. So we go from knowledge of our darkened understanding to knowledge of the truth, eyes that have been opened by the Holy Spirit. It's the voluntative center. So we go from not desiring or willing to do good to having the desire and the will to do good. So all these things are, are encapsulated. When we're talking about turning to God with all our hearts, it's not just, okay, love God where you didn't love him before. No, it's, 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 it, it affects you. It's the whole man. It's every bit of you, your identity, your affections, your mind, your will. All of that. that is turned to God. Away from sin It's the part of us that either turns away from God towards evil or towards God in repentance. It is not just our emotions turning to God, it's our whole being. So now that we know that and we understand what all is meant when we hear this word "leb," man, that just should rock the way that we see Jeremiah 17:9. It says, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick." Who can understand it? It's not just that we're a little off in our emotions, right? We just need some correction of how we feel about God or you know our 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 love is off so we just need to love God more. Yeah, that's certainly true, but look, we are desperately sick. That we're desperately right there if you look at it, it's it's really incurably sick. Our heart is incurably sick. It's not just our emotions that are a little messed up. It's every bit of us that is corrupt, that is incurably sick, um, and is in desperate need of repentance. So our identity is messed up. Our, our way of thinking, our logic is messed up. Our reasoning ability is messed up, and it's, it's incurably sick unless God causes us to repent and give us a new heart that's turned towards him away from corruptible thing so if we understand this right if we're in this room and we are believers of christ and we are not going after every wicked detestable thing that our evil hearts would desire and crave without being affected by god if if we aren't chasing all those things with our might it's because god has been gracious to us and given us a new heart and one that's turned towards him in repentance. So repentance should invoke in us a sense of worship, more so than so many many things. It's going to invoke in us a lot of responsibility too, but man, if we have repented, it is because of God's grace in giving us a heart that turns towards him, and we desperately need that and should desperately worship him when we see repentance occur in our hearts because without that repentance, we are incurably sick. Every bit of us, not just our emotions. Every bit of us is incurably sick without the grace of God causing us to turn to him. So I'm going to wrap up. Uh, we saw this. This is the third time we've seen this verse now. So it's significant, though, because it has three of the words that we looked at tonight in one verse. So if you, you want a memory verse for this week, here you go. Um, but First Samuel 7, 3 and Samuel said all the house of Israel, if you are returning, shuv, so directional change. Remember, physical direction change. So if you are returning, that applied to a moral context, so change of direction. If you were going this way, but now you're turning to the Lord. If you are returning, and notice it's in an ongoing sense, if you are returning. It's not just a, a thing in the past. It's an ongoing reality. To the Lord with all your heart, so, not just your emotions, but a continual turning to the Lord with your whole being. Every, every part of your your mind, every part of your will, your emotion. And out of an extension of that, then, putting away foreign gods and Ashtaroth. Now, this represented the sin for the people. They were in many ways exiled because of their idolatry which represented their unfaithfulness to God's command. This was the the first law and they broke it time and time again and the Old Testament is full of language about them committing infidelity or unfaithfulness because of this sin turning to foreign gods rather than turning to God. So they, they were, this represented them breaking the law of God and we have no shortage of examples of how we break the law of God every day when we fail to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbors ourselves. So putting away that iniquity that was rebellion against God and God's law, putting that away and directing your heart to the Lord. And from that flows service to Him. So as we turn to God with all our being, Naturally, we're going to serve him, and that leads to deliverance. So you can already imagine how these same ideas and themes are carried right on into the New Testament, speaking about our deliverance in Christ through our repentance and faith in him. But for now, this is what we're looking at in the Old Testament. And so four Hebrew words for you to be looking at this week. And as you're thinking about those, I just challenge you to think through like, we don't understand, one th- for one thing, we don't understand how our sin makes God, breaks God's heart and grieves God, like we saw with that first word we looked at. And then the other thing that we just don't understand so often and I've come to realize is how often we make decisions day by day or thought patterns or the way we're talking or thinking or acting that just absolutely are not filtered through the things of the Lord. And so my challenge to you is, like, repentance is an ongoing thing. If you have repented in the past initially for salvation, it didn't stop there. Like, it's an ongoing thing because every, every decision, the way we think about things, is affected by being turned to God. Our logic is affected by being turned to God. Our affections... I was thinking about, like, David. You read Psalm 119, that man's love for the law of God is unnatural. Like, I remember reading that as a child and thinking, how in the world am I going to love the law of God like this? Like, that's just not going to happen. But it's because he had a heart that was changed and turned towards God. His affections were changed. Same with us. We, our hearts, incurably sick unless we cry out and depend on God continually to change our heart and change our affections towards him, we're hopeless. So I've been very convicted about my heart, my affections, my knowledge, my decision-making, logic, all those things. It's a very inclusive idea of repentance. It's not just an isolated thing of, you know, your emotions or, or just one part of you. It's a complete change in turning towards God. So... Any questions or comments on any of that?